today we're going to be reading in Mark 9, verses 30 through 50. All right. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, With which I am... No, he didn't. Skip the page. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in his name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Thank you, Violet. Let's go ahead and pray. God, thank you for this day to gather together. Your mercies are new each morning, you say, in your word. And we thank you that we, by faith, can trust that when we look behind us and see what we faced in the week, the trials we've had, the difficulties, the sorrows, the joys, um, the ways that we have not done what we're supposed to do, that we can be greeted with sunrise the next day and with new mercies that next day as well. Pray for, we pray for um, our church family. We have people among us who are sick and who are going through difficult trials of different kinds. We have people who are um, not with us because they're gone over summer vacation or they're um, on trips for business. And God, we pray that the hope of Jesus would be taken to each of these people, us here that are gathered and those who are experiencing difficulty, those who are separate from us and distanced from us, we pray their ears would also hear of the goodness of Jesus today. They would be reminded perhaps as they look out at the sky or see a a child playing, um, spending time with someone or in pain, um, that they would see that Jesus has a purpose in all of these things that we face. I pray today as we look at Mark 9, God, that you would use your spirit to show us truth and to help us. These are not my words. This is not my wisdom. This is an opportunity for us to be um, taught by the Spirit. And so use me as a mouthpiece, God, but only insofar as your will is accomplished. And God, thank you that we can be here together to worship by singing and by um, spending some time listening to your word, and allowing your spirit to shepherd and care for us. God, thank you for Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. We are in week six of our One Another series. As a reminder, here is our roadmap. We had the do's and don'ts the last two weeks, which Wayne taught on, and before that was Rob with welcoming. We're doing Endure One Another today, and uh, I hope you have noticed 
I'm so thankful for Wayne and Rob making a point in their sermons to drive home that we do not want to be people who are simply doing the do's and the do-nots like Wayne talked about or like Rob talked about, just welcoming because we're supposed to be doing so. As I referred to in the past, we're not fruit stapling. We're not saying, well, the fruit's not right, so let's just go get the right fruit and put it on as if that somehow changes the core of who we are internally. And I hope that this big picture understanding of God being a God who is after our hearts, and it doesn't just want mere external obedience. I hope this is not lost on us as a church, that we're not trying to just do the one another's so that we're healthy, uh, that we are trying to put ourselves, as I've heard somebody here in this church say, that God's grace is like a semi, and we're just going to put ourselves as best as we can in a place where it will just overtake us and and, uh, flow through us and change us from the inside out. So I hope that that is not lost on us. Today we're doing Endure, not the happiest of topics. I appreciated Wayne's humor uh, last week, dealing with something that also wasn't the the happiest of topics. And uh, I'm going to do some of the same. So here are six examples of strange, weird things that other people do that uh, are just a sampling of what we as humans have to endure from others. This person says, my little brother eats his burger layer by layer. You people who take food that's put together and then you separate it out and you eat it when it's supposed to be all together for a purpose because it tastes good, I don't understand. When you go to a restaurant, a really fancy one, and they have those entrees where they take what's supposed to be this whole unit and then they lay all the pieces out on a plate, I don't know why you pay more money for somebody to not put something together for you. doesn't make any sense. Another person says, if it's really cold... I will microwave my socks before putting them on. <laughs> really makes you want to go over to their house, doesn't it? Hey, can I, uh, can I warm up my burger in the, in the microwave? This person says, I like to dip my toast in milk. Oh, yeah, gross. Did you hear that? <laughs> like, it brings out this guttural, why would you do that? It's supposed to be crispy, isn't it? Yeah, that brings up bread pudding. This is not on here, but I don't understand bread pudding. It's the same concept. Why would you take something that's supposed to be moist in a very gentle way with crispiness and then make it like this mushy, gooey thing? I don't get it. Okay, here's another person. I count every single stair I walk up. Yeah, you didn't live with somebody who was like this. I did. My younger brother counts every stair. If you were to ask me, when I'm not here at the church, how many steps does it take to get up to the platform? I would be clueless. I wouldn't have a clue. But if you were to ask my brother, how many steps are in the house that we grew up in? He would tell you, 17. I think that's actually the number only because I've heard him say it so many times. People who think that way, they're just, they're so strange to me that they would stop and think, I need to count all these steps as I'm walking up them. I don't get it. Okay, Uh, here's another one. I used to notice my Labrador would wiggle his whole body when he was exceptionally excited. So I copied him, and now when I'm at a restaurant and my food comes, I do a little wiggle dance. (laughs) That would be a strange thing to see, wouldn't it? Okay. Finally, um, this one's one's a a kicker. Uh, A UPS guy once caught my grandma biting her toenails. (laughs) She was in the sunroom with the screen door open, and the guy walked up to the door to deliver the, passage, the package and walked in on her biting her toenails. Yow, that one's strange. It's kind of weird. Yeah, a little cringy. Yeah. Those are humorous examples, but we all could then really quickly turn and go to some other examples of things that we have to endure that other people do that are really hard for us to work with, that we are called to endure other people and their strangeness. Uh, It's a task, but it is something that Jesus calls us to. That means there must be joy that's found in it, and that is our goal today. The way I'm going to handle this is I'm going to remind us about the one another's. I'm going to then ask three questions. Why do we endure one another? What does enduring entail? And what does this look like practically? And if you have a printout, those are the three pieces that you see there. And then I'll have some implications and homework to follow. So quickly, the one and others that we are drawing from. 
The first one is Mark 9.50, which is going to be the focal point, so I'm going to skip over that one. But the other three come from Ephesians and from Colossians. Basically, the same theme or idea, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, uh, bearing with one another, Colossians says, and then Paul says again in Ephesians, bear with one another in love. That's where we're drawing from. That's our source, this idea of enduring. And then finally, in Mark 9, 50, which is where you can go ahead and camp out, it says, be at peace with one another, which I am reading the same as endure one another. That brings up a question. Why should we endure? What is the purpose of it? Because when we're asked to endure other people, that's asking a lot. Yes, people are strange and they're different. People that don't grow up in the same household as one another oftentimes have a hard time getting along together. This happens when friendships blossom or when people get married or when people from different cultures meet. This enduring thing is a difficult thing. Why should we endure? Well, as I mentioned, at the core of our sermon series is the truth that we're not able to bring about change internally. And so this idea of enduring needs to have gospel roots. It needs to be anchored in this concept of God is working in us, doing something beautiful when we endure others. One of the themes of the gospel of Mark is discipleship and its cost. And we read a little bit about the cost of discipleship. Violet read that for us. One chapter before in Mark 8, there is another statement about the cost of discipleship. And the reason that this is there is if you were to just be a participant in what was taking place, walking around with Jesus, and you were living like how Mark presents his gospel, which is oftentimes referred to as the gospel of immediacy, because he uses the word immediately a lot, you would think that it's like the top 10 uh, that Sports Center does every day. Being with Jesus is like a top 10 series, um, little snippet. You go from one height to the next. If you were to rewind a couple chapters, you would come across Jesus doing some pretty sensational healing of people. There's a woman who had an issue with blood for 12 years. Jesus takes care of that by him or by her merely touching him. And then there's the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000. There is a literal mountaintop experience that take pla- takes place at the first half of chapter nine, the transfiguration with Peter and James and John. And it's almost as if perhaps the disciples are getting this idea that being a follower of Jesus means pretty cool things. I mean, who wouldn't say, sign me up? It's like when you watch somebody, when you watch a clip of soccer, you get done and you think, okay, I can watch this game. This looks pretty exciting. And then you tune into a soccer match and you realize it's 90 minutes of grown men chasing a ball around falling down like little sissies because somebody accidentally hurt them. And you go, this is, this is not what was presented to me, people. <laughs> soccer is terrible to watch. I used to play soccer, love playing soccer. It is a horrific sport to watch. It's like watching paint dry, yes? Okay, now you're getting all right. So if you were a follower of Jesus at the time, you would be thinking, this is pretty sweet. I and mean, we get to heal people. We get to have these awesome mountaintop experiences. We're just like... The fish doesn't stop. It, it keeps on coming. How does this happen? And Jesus now sets the record straight. Mark is using this rhetorical tool to say to the disciples and to us, no, following Jesus it actually looks somewhat different than you might think it looks. And so what does it look like? Well, Jesus says, following Jesus actually has at its core denial of self. That is enduring other people by saying, I'm not the most important Therefore, I will put up, with, put up with other people and their differences. And the way that I'm going to handle this is, here's a pie chart. If you take the four chunks, 30 through 32, and then following, I think you could put them up into easy summaries to say that this unit here is one theme. I'm trying to point out that 30 through 50 is a, a singular concept because you get to 50 and 49, and he's saying some weird things, and he's mixing metaphors, and it doesn't quite make sense. I think this helps us answer the question. So 30 through 32 could be the son of man must deny self. Jesus says the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. This is actually the second time Jesus has said this to them in two chapters. They're not getting the picture that following him is about denying self. And he is showing that he's not above this issue of denying self. 
next section, 33 through 37, we could sum up as the greatest denies self by serving the least. And he uses this example of a child. He provides an object lesson to the disciples and says, here you are, men in your late teens, early 20s, Life is happening for you. A couple of you are fishermen. You work really hard all day long. Another one of you is a tax collector. You pay really close attention to the numbers. Another one of you does this and another one does that. Now imagine a group of late teen, early 20 guys and all of a sudden Jesus drops a child in the midst of them and says, you know what you need to do? You need to welcome this child. Like Rob talked about three weeks ago, that level of welcoming. That means whenever, whatever you're doing in your life that keeps you busy, You need to put on hold so that you can meet the needs of this child. Then 38 through 41 is this idea of the least of Jesus and not the least of us. If you notice in verse 38, John says to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because wouldn't you believe it? He wasn't following us. And Jesus says, I think perhaps they're getting the wrong idea. It's not about us. This is not our team. This is the team of Jesus. And then lastly, 42 through 48, skipping out on the last two verses, to deny or to not deny self is worse. And this is a frequent tool that Jesus uses. He shows that what he's calling them to is hard. There's no doubt about that. But that it is easier than the alternative. Yes, when he talks about radical amputation, to conceive of chopping off an arm or a leg or gouging out an eye, that's a significant thing, but it's far better to be missing one of those items and be in joy than it is to be fully intact and be in suffering and sorrow. When he says in Matthew, come to me, everyone who's weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he doesn't say, I have no yoke for you and I have no burden. He says, I have a yoke, but compared to the alternative that the Pharisees have been selling, mine is light, my yoke is easy compared to what they have to provide. Still, how does this help us understand why we are to endure? Well, if we take this pie chart idea, we say all of Mark 30 through 50, they deal with the same idea, that is the cost of discipleship. That should help us understand where he's going with these strange metaphors that he includes at verse 49 and 50. Jesus talks about temptations to sin, and then in 49 he says, Everyone will be salted with fire. Okay, he's been talking about fire, kind of makes sense. But then he says, salt is good. If the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? He seems to switch the metaphor, compiles on a little bit of difficulty in understanding. And most people that I consulted when they talked about this, they fell into one of three categories when they tried to understand how are we to understand salt and fire. The first is that believers are now what is being offered to God. And they would say, well, if you take this idea of salt and fire, those have sacrificial overtones. They tie it to uh, Leviticus 2.13 is one of the verses if you want to look it up. Another one's um, somewhere in Deuteronomy. I don't remember where right now. But basically, they're saying, okay, we have this sacrificial system, big picture thing that God's been communicating. And now this idea of salt is something where when you have a sacrifice, you're supposed to add some salt to it. Kind of ties in with what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. uh, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, except there the sacrifice seems to be the person and not the salt. The salt doesn't seem like it's quite substantial enough because salt just communicates a little bit of this, not the whole of the sacrifice. So there's not clarity there, at least in my mind. The second is that the fire that's here refers to God's judgment for all. And actually, for one and two, they kind of deal with one side and they don't really deal with the other. They say, well, the the metaphors are confusing. We're not quite sure what to do with these here. So they just handle with salt on the first one. The second one is fire. And they say, well, Jesus has been talking about fire. He talks about hell in 42 through 48. The word he uses is Gehenna. And Gehenna refers to the Valley of Hinnom which is a place on the southwest side of the temple area where the city of David is. So you'd have the city of David here and then Gehenna is going to be over here. And Gehenna was a place where child sacrifice used to take place back when Israel was way off course. And so when they got back on course, they reserved that place kind of like as an everlasting area of 
refuse and disgusting stuff to communicate how disgusting it was what the people were doing. So it just became the garbage dump. And when Jesus talks about fire and worm, he's actually talking about a literal fire that seems to burn in the Valley of Hinnom for all time while they're there because they're just burning all the time, all the refuse that's there, and then worm because things are decomposing and and that's where worms are. So when he talks about hell, he's actually using another example of something that's very near and real to them when he talks about it. Today, we typically think of like fire and brimstone type stuff, but for them, it was a very clear understanding. It'd be like if we went over on, I don't know what it is, 94, and we were south of where the, the dump is, and we saw the big plume of fire coming out um, from the top of the flame of fire all the time, and you, you just go there and you smell. And, and Jesus, for us, would talk about it's a place where the stink of rotten eggs never leaves. I mean, it would be this very real and clear thing to us. Okay, so fire deals with that, but again, this understanding doesn't really help us with the salt. How are we salted with fire? And also, the fire, it's not really the same as the fire of judgment, right? For everyone will be salted with fire. They would say, well, this kind of ties to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul talks about whoever builds on a foundation of stone versus the other, and the dross will all be burned away. But again, that seems to be the fire at the end, not being salted with fire, which isn't as substantial. The 1 Corinthians 3 passage is kind of more of like a crucible. So take a uh, something made out of clay and then burn it to like 2,000 degrees and get all the impurities to burn out. So you're burning metal out of metal. That takes a lot of temperature. Being salted with fire isn't that substantial. The last is that salt is a preservative and believers are to preserve the world. And this kind of comes from, uh, I don't know, like the last 70 or 80 years where in theology, we had this understanding that believers were slowly making the world better. And kind of as we purified the world around us, we ushered in the kingdom, so to speak. Well, we have clearly seen after the world wars that that's not what believers are doing. And so over the last 50 or 70 years, we've kind of migrated away from this concept that when the Bible talks about salt, it's saying that believers are preservatives in the sense that salt is a preservative. Again, slight truths there, but maybe not the whole idea. Well, I'm still unsatisfied when I look at those. I want to drive the point home a little more clearly. You can't read this most likely, but hopefully you can see the colors. And what I have up here are 33 through 50. And I've highlighted some words that unify the passage by tying the whole passage together. With yellow, we have child. Jesus talks about the child. He puts him in the midst. And then again, he says later on, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. And the word there, little one, it could refer to those that are like child, small, or it could refer to those that are like child in faith. That is, they appear to the disciples to not be one who is as uh, faith-filled as they are, but it's tying it together. Then in black, in my name, and the last one, the longer one, uh, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, the text actually reads, because you are in my name. Again, this is just putting this as one whole piece together. Red, causes one of these, causes you, causes you, causes you. Blue talks about entering life and entering the kingdom. Green talks about fire. And finally, pink deals with salt. And hopefully you can see, if you were sculpting this piece of, I don't know, rhetoric or this page here, and you wanted to have an idea consistent throughout, you would unify it by providing connective points all along the way. I'm still driving towards this final point. What is it? that we're supposed to be picking up with these metaphors. Everyone will be salted with fire. If salt is no longer good, what are you going to do with it? So therefore have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. How does this relate to enduring? Well, when Jesus says, be salted with fire, I am proposing that that's communicating everyone is going to face trials and difficulty. How does this relate to the context? What happens when somebody shows up representing Jesus and they don't look the part 
like the guy who didn't look the part earlier on. We didn't read that one, but uh, Jesus, or John talks to Jesus and says, hey, we, we saw this guy and he cast out a demon. We, what we didn't read was earlier on, the disciples actually come down from the mountain and they're having a disagreement and the disagreement is a problem because a man has showed up with a lame child and he says, I tried to ask your disciples to heal him and they couldn't. And so this means that sometimes we as Jesus followers, we're going to be around other people that God is working through, and that's really going to twinge a nerve that God is working through these people who seem like they're not of us, whether that's ecclesiastically in this church, whether that's a family unit, whether that's denominationally. They may look like they are not of Jesus, but Jesus says, if they are of me, don't worry. If they're doing great works on my name, they're not going to turn and say, we're not following Jesus. That's something that we have to endure is putting up with other people who love Jesus, who don't look a lot like what we would expect they would except God is working through them. That is why we face a trial and a difficulty. It's because we have to endure the fact that sometimes what looks very different is actually okay. Now, there's a very clear line, and we say these are the denominational, or I'm sorry, these are the theological truths that we will not back down from, and I'm not talking about any of those. I'm not talking about the deity of Jesus. I'm not talking about who Mary is. I'm not talking about uh, annihilationism versus continuationism with our souls. I'm not talking about any of the solid truths that we would say, these are the hills that we can die on. But for those other ones, sometimes we're called to endure people who look very different from us. How else does this relate? How about the temptation bit, 42 through 48? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying, it's better for you to endure the difficulty of putting up with someone who is different from you in a way that they inconvenience you and so you have to change the way that you live it's better to endure that than it is to endure the alternative. Or what about the, com- the conversation about who is the greatest? It is better to be the least and to endure doing things that Jesus says the greatest are supposed to do, which is to serve other people. Can we just be real with one another? Serving other people stinks sometimes. It's just no fun. Sometimes we just have to grit our teeth and bear it. And that's, that's the reality of life on earth is that sometimes we have to put up with other people. They are difficult. But the reality is, to them, we're the ones who are difficult, right? It's so easy when we're on this side of things, but when we're on the other side, then it, it becomes much more complicated. So hopefully you're seeing this is how it all connects Everyone will face trials and difficulty. This is the salting with fire. This is what I'm presuming. If you disagree with me, that's okay. I would love to know what your perspective is. Um, Not to press against you, but this is a strange text that he says here. Everyone's gonna be salted with fire. So I think, to be very clear, I think Jesus is saying, you're gonna face trial and difficulty in life because you're going to have to endure. This is how it's gonna happen. Everybody's gonna be salted with having to endure other people. Peter hits on this. In um, Second Peter, First Peter four, I think maybe I had it written down. Nope, I didn't. I think it's four seven. Don't quote me on it. He says, "Don't be surprised by the fiery trial that's come upon you." And that idea of trial—it's just all these different things. It's like what James talks about. Um, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials are not these super spiritual things. They're when you go to the fridge and that thing that you were planning on eating all day long is no longer there and your diet is restricted and you say to your family, you know, the list of things that I can eat in this house is pretty small and yet somehow you manage to eat the things that only I can eat or that I can only eat and that's what we're called to do. That's a trial, something like that, but that's a moment to see Jesus and see joy and I'll get there. Second, what does he mean when he says, have salt in yourselves? Jesus says all kinds of things that I hope and I know in heaven he will clarify. And I don't know if I'm right on this one. I think I'm getting close, but I'm not quite sure. I think when he says, have salt in yourselves, what he's saying is, 
seek these times of trial as opportunities to find joy in me. And the reason I think that is because in Matthew 5, when he's talking about this same idea, he says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall the saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Then he changes the metaphor, but he continues with the same idea. You are the light of the world. Salt of the earth, light of the world, different metaphor, same idea. You proclaim me, image bearer. You show, you shed light on reality. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You show the goodness of Jesus in your life. And so here specifically what Mark is saying is, this is Jesus' teaching. This is what's gone on. I'm writing the narrative, so I get to pick and choose what happens here. And what I'm trying to communicate is what I learned of following Jesus is that I'm going to have to endure other people. And when I do, guess what I shout and proclaim? Jesus is good. You better believe enduring is hard, but guess what? Jesus is better. Man, you want to talk about a way to share the gospel with people? Don't complain. When somebody picks on you, that's okay. Jesus is better. When somebody chafes you, they do something, they eat the food that's yours to eat, remind yourself, Jesus is better. Man, it's so good to know that he is better. So how does this relate to peace? Peace is what happens when people who love Jesus deny themselves and endure those around them, knowing that in these moments are opportunities to see and proclaim that Jesus is better than self. We've all grown up with a family of some kind. We've seen moments of extreme turmoil. When we're all vying for ourselves, life in a home is chaotic and there is no peace. But when we just sit back and say, you know what, people are going to do things that are going to drive me bonkers and I'm going to remind myself that I am not God, that's when peace starts to enter into the situation. So when we are called to live at peace with one another as brothers and sisters in a church family and endure, we do it because it's an opportunity to say Jesus is better than this. Okay. What does enduring entail? I'm just going to grab this from the text. Uh, I've got five examples of how I see enduring is clear in this text here. Number one, enduring means that we will have to be around people who are an inconvenience to us. People are an inconvenience. And I take this from verse 36. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them and taking them in his arms, he said to them, uh, I want to make sure I don't think children are an inconvenience. I want to make that very, very clear. Okay, my example is, as I was typing up this very section, uh, Libby was at an appointment and I had the girls with me for a couple hours here. And in the course of two hours, we worked through conflict management, issues of food, probably like four or five times. My family loves to eat. We did, uh, I would like a music request. I would like something to color. Okay, uh, making the point, children are not bad, but children do necessitate lots, right? That's what Jesus is trying to say. When you have a kid, you can't just say to the kid, here, let me pacify you with something. They have needs, it's continual, all right? So enduring means we're going to be around people who are an inconvenience, and it's not gonna be a one-time thing. It's gonna be repeatedly. Second, enduring means <clears throat> that the team is built off of Jesus. We have to allow their room to be others who are different. And can I just say ecclesiastically, that means um, fancy word from Fancy Nancy, fancy word just for the church. We need to find ways to connect with other churches in Madison who love Jesus, who aren't way out there, but are maybe a little bit further off than we would be, how they might do things practically, methodologically. It'd be good for us to do that because when we do that, we recognize the team is not this here. The team is Team Jesus. That's the team that we're on. They might do things differently, but at the end of the day, this is Team Jesus. Third, enduring means not doing what we have the freedom to do because it causes our brother or sister to stumble. 
the ESV, I think the NASB, and maybe one or two others, they use the word sin in verse 42, 43, 45, and 47. The ESV at least has a textual note. I'm not sure about the others. I didn't check. I don't think it's a good translation because the word is stumble, not sin. And when it communicates sin, it communicates right and wrong. But when it communicates stumble, it means you might do something that's difficult for another person that's not a right or wrong issue. It's just difficult for them. And so enduring means sometimes we put a yoke on ourselves. We don't do certain things. We don't express certain freedoms because in doing those things, we might harm a brother or sister. Let me read that same verse again. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck. That kind of broadens it, doesn't it? And when it says millstone, when I thought of this, I thought, well, like somehow there's a chain that goes around your neck and that's connected to the millstone and somebody takes the millstone and they throw it over the cliff like in the movie Aladdin and then, you know, the, the chain then pulls the person down. Actually, the word picture here is that the millstone, which would fit over this center column and a burst of beaten, a beast, sorry, a beast of burden, would walk around and move the giant stone, so there's a hole in the middle. It's that somehow this stone is put literally on your neck, and it's so big that only a beast of burden can move it, and that's what's thrown in. It's not coming off, right? That's the picture there. So again, this is not sin. This is beyond that. We can sometimes do things that are harmful to others that aren't right and wrong issues. Fourth, Enduring means not doing what we have the freedom to do because it causes us to stumble. This example is borrowed from John MacArthur and from my own experience. There are certain types of potato chips that I love to eat. We just don't have them in the house. Because when we have those potato chips in the house, my relationship with food becomes very unhealthy very, very quickly. And so there are things that lead me to stumble that I'm just cautious about. And careful, that one's kind of a humorous example, but there are other things um, that we want to be careful about what we're doing, and that means enduring. And yes, we have to endure and put up with our own difficulties and our own, um, I don't know, the ways that we bother ourselves. Lastly, enduring involves waiting a long time and having it be uncomfortable. And I'm taking this through all of 30 to 50 And I'm just trying to put myself in Jesus' shoes here and saying, wow, these disciples, they are not getting the picture. And we know from the rest of the Gospels that he put up with them for three and a half years. And I think put up is probably a good term. Uh, And then it took a long time after that for them to grow and mature uh, and change fully. And even when they died, these men were not perfect. That's what enduring entails All right, what does this look like practically? I've got four examples. We'll go through quickly. Number one, some of you remember what would Jesus do? Bracelets from the late 90s, early, probably more like early 20s. I came to Jesus right around 2001, and so I'm not sure if this existed before me or not. That's why I'm fuzzy on the timing here. But bad idea. Don't ask the question, what would Jesus do? Jesus was the Messiah. He could do things that we never should or could do. Okay, but maybe a different question or a good way to think about what does this look, look like practically would be, Open up a gospel, gospel of Mark, and walk through it and ask the question, what did this situation require of Jesus and his endurance? Sometimes we get snippets of it. He says it earlier on in chapter 9, something like, oh, how long am I going to have to put up with you? This, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Just go through one of the gospels and ask the question, What did it look like for Jesus to endure here? And you'll begin to see this is how the Messiah endured. Next, read a missionary biography. I've got four up there. The Pastor's Wife by Sabina Wormbrandt. Evidence Not Seen by Darlene Dibler-Rose. I've recommended that one before, actually both of them. Through Gates of Splendor by Elizabeth Elliot. And then The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. If you were paying attention, you would have noticed all of those were women. That is not a coincidence. Women routinely do a far better job of being placed under having to endure because they're moms and because they're connected to men. So it is good for us, and this is really more for the men than it is for the women, 
it is good for us to ask the question of what does endurance look like and to learn from people who love Jesus, who are enduring, who are women. And I would recommend any of these. They are so amazing. What some of these ladies walked through is just astounding. It's just astounding. And read through it and say, what did endurance look, for this, look like in this person's life? Sometimes, like when I was reading The Pastor's Wife by Sabina Wormbrandt, uh, she would say something. I'd be like, I don't think I agree with that. But then I'd have to step back and go, okay, but if I were in her shoes and I was surrounded by a bunch of women who made their money selling their bodies and I was doing this, yeah, you know what? My response would probably be the same because you just kind of have to roll with the context that you're in. It's nice and clean where I'm at here on my bike ride or whatever it was that I was listening to at that time, but uh, it's different when you're there. So that's one way to think through. This one, the compost pile. If anybody's wondering, that is a, a field of uh, dung. This is from This Momentary Marriage by John Piper. Uh, this is how he talks about enduring in the context of marriage. He says, what about the compost pile I mentioned at the end of the last chapter? Well, picture your marriage as a grassy field. You enter it at the beginning, full of hope and joy. You look out into the future and you see beautiful flowers and trees and rolling hills. And that beauty is what you see in each other. Your relationship is the field and the flowers and the rolling hills. But before long, you begin to step in cow pies. <laughs> Some seasons of your marriage, there may seem, they may seem to be everywhere. Late at night, they are especially prevalent. These are the sins and flaws and idiosyncrasies and weaknesses and annoying habits in you and in your spouse. Again, that's that idea of not sin, but stumble. It's more than just right and wrong. You try to forgive them, and endure them with grace, but they have a way of dominating the relationship. It may not even be true, but sometimes it feels like that's all there is, cow pies. His wife's name is Noel. Noel and I have come to believe that the combination of forbearance and forgiveness leads to the creation of a compost pile. That's where you shovel the cow pies. You both look at each other and simply admit that there are a lot of cow pies. But you say to each other, you know, there is more to this relationship than cow pies. And we are losing sight of that because we keep focusing on these cow pies. Let's throw them all in the compost pile. When we have to, we'll go there, we'll smell it, and we'll feel bad and deal with it as best as we can. And then we're going to walk away from that pile and set our eyes on the rest of the field. We will pick some favorite paths and hills that we know are not strewn with cow pies and we will be thankful for the part of the field that is sweet. Our hands may be dirty, and our backs may ache from all the shoveling, but one thing we know, we will not pitch our tent by the compost pile. We will only go there when we must. This is a gift of grace that we will give each other again and again and again, because we are chosen and holy and loved. What a beautiful example of a way to endure, is to think of something that's rather disgusting and to think, you know what? Sometimes we just want to like pick on the person because they're doing this thing, but the reality is we're just as responsible for all kinds of chaos. And then example number four, this one's a quiz. If you have the piece of paper, you have uh, some blank spaces there. I would love for you all to participate. If you don't have a piece of paper, pull out your phone. Um, yeah, don't write on the Bibles. That wouldn't be a good idea because you wouldn't want this to go out. All right, I want you, number one, to write down a goal that you've had lately that you have failed to achieve. I don't see enough scribbling. I want, could you, would you honor me in this way? Would you write this stuff down? A goal that you have, that you've tried to achieve and you have failed. A sin problem that you have, that you've been struggling with for years and you don't have a handle on yet. Don't be afraid to be generic here. It's not a bad thing because you, you might have some peeping eyes next to you. A really poor financial purchase you've made. <clears throat> could have been two weeks ago. Could have been 20 years ago. Something you look back on and you think, whoa, that was a really bad decision. 
I hope most people never know that I did that. Fourth, something you broke that was of great value to you or it could be to someone else. Shattered glass, a car, could be a relationship, doesn't have to be a literal breaking, could be figurative. And finally, a habit that you have that isn't the most healthy or attractive. This idea is coming from a book that I read lately that was really helpful. We're all familiar with uh, the House of Mirrors in a carnival, yes? Where you walk into the mirrors and they've bent the glass so that you appear differently than you would otherwise. You know, when you look at other people, you tend to look at them this way. I tend to look at them this way as though they're misshapen and deformed and their warts and their issues are way bigger than they really are. But now look at that list that you just wrote. That's only five items that are a small snapshot of all the ways that you mess up in this world. How much grace do you have for yourself? And why do you not extend that grace to other people? This was hard for me when I came across this in the book and I thought about that. I thought, yeah, you know what? I'm the first one in line when it comes time for me to have Jesus' grace, but sometimes when it comes time for me to allow Jesus to have grace for others, I'm usually more back towards the end of the queue. And I don't mean to shame anybody. Um, This is just for you and your own thinking. We should instead be looking at ourselves more like this, which is probably more reality. And we should be looking at others as though it's the reverse of the carnival stop, that is, that they're cleaner, because we should look at them through the lens that Jesus does, that is, child of God, brother or sister. What are some implications? I'll wrap these up. If you are somebody who is slow to forgive, if you harbor bitterness and frustration, can I just encourage you to step back and examine how this relates to the gospel? If you harbor frustration for long amounts of time, if people do small things and to you they are large things, you probably need to re-examine the gospel and understand it, either in the broad sense, that is, that Jesus has died for sinners, or in the specific sense, that is, in this situation here, I, I need to allow there to be room for the gospel to come in and inform the way I view this person. For the person who holds on to these frustrations, What you're saying is, this is implication number two, what you're saying is, this is the road to joy. Because we're always worshiping. And so if we walk down one road, we're saying, this is the road that leads to my joy. And if we walk down another road, we're saying, this is the road that leads to joy. And I just want to remind you that Jesus says that when you have salt in yourselves and when you are at peace with one another, that's a road that leads to joy. And so if you found that you're somebody who is bitter a lot of the time or frustrated a lot of the time or gets worked up over small things, be encouraged. The road that Jesus provides is so much more joy-filled. That's the path that leads to joy and treasure. Uh, Just like communion, which we're going to do here, is an opportunity to proclaim the goodness of Jesus, so is our one another. And that's what I talked about earlier, just like a a city on a hill shines, shines out light. And then the last one is from one of my professors. If Unless somebody has done some, something to you that is chapter and verse specific, that is, you can go find the specific thing that they've done, you probably shouldn't bring it up to them as we seek to endure. Now, I'm not talking about anything criminal. If somebody's done something criminal or it's a uh, criminating offense that can be prosecuted, we need to deal with those. We need to deal with those appropriately and rightly. But as we, brothers and sisters here within church life, as we're relating to one another, unless somebody has done something that's chapter and verse specific in magnitude of wrongness, that should be one of those things that we say, you know what, we're going to put that in the compost pile. Maybe one day Jesus will give me an opportunity to talk to that person about it. They may bring it up in a week and I might have an opportunity to talk about it without them even having to say, or with me even having to say, you know, can I talk to you about this thing? And I'm not saying amidst normal relationships with one another, but just for the casual interactions that we have, Allow for there to be differences 
between one another. And, uh, you know, of the churches that I've been a part of, this is a church that does a good job of that. Um, so from an outsider's perspective, not that I'm not part of you, but I want to encourage you in that. This is a church that's, I think, very healthy in that way. Here's some homework. Ask someone to observe you complaining for two weeks, then get a report from them. Choose somebody that you know will be honest with you. Somebody who observes you and say, hey, just observe me when this happens or when that happens and then come back and tell me, am I somebody who complains a lot? Am I somebody who tends to make mountains out of molehills? And then use that as an opportunity to see Jesus as better. If you have been holding on to something that someone has done to you, here today, when we come to the table, before we get there, let it go. Say, Jesus, one day you will make all things right. One day, if this person has done something wrong that needs to be punished, and I'm saying wrong here, not in the sense of something criminal. Again, I want to make that very clear. Just trust Jesus will make all things right. And the list of things internally is probably far more than external. And then third, read one of the biographies. Here they are again if you need to know what they look like or what the titles are. This takes us to the Lord's Supper. And uh, here at Memorial, we practice what is referred to as open Lord's Supper. That is to say, you don't have to be a member of the church. You don't have to be a regular attender. You do have to be somebody who says, I am participating in this because I love Jesus because he has died for my sins and because he is the only sacrifice that makes me clean. And it is called the supper, not because it's going to satisfy us physically, but because as we drink and as we eat, we are reminded, God has got new mercies for me. And this is another opportunity to proclaim the gospel to ourselves. I wasn't trying to make anybody feel bad or heap shame or anything like that on this one was different than maybe a couple weeks ago. But I just want to remind you that this is Jesus saying to us, I willingly give myself knowing that you are someone who needs to be endured. And where you may grit your teeth and bear it because you are human, I am not only human, but I'm also God. And I don't grit my teeth and bear it when you sin. I have paid for that. And now I joyfully invite you to be a part of what my father is doing 